0: This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I was joined by Dr. Richard Dennis. Richard is Executive Director of the Australia Institute, and he joined me to talk about federal COVID-19 policy failures, as well as the real causes of inflation currently causing rising interest rates. This is according to the Australia Institute's latest research. Then I was joined by Dr. Damien Smith. Damien is a curator, art historian, art critic and gallery director. And he joined me to talk about a new book which he edited called The Jeff Raby Collection of Contemporary Chinese Art. Damien has been working with this very special collection for many years. The collection was donated to La Trobe University by Jeff Raby, Australia's former ambassador to China, Damien talks about the artists, artworks, and the varying artistic themes that are featured within the collection and that challenge our conception of Chinese contemporary art, as well as giving us cultural insights into China in the 21st century. Then, finally, I was joined by Tanya Wolfe and Lizzie O'Shea. Tanya is President of the Law Institute of Victoria, and Lizzie is Chair of Digital Rights Watch. They sat down with me to delve into the Victorian Government's proposed digital health record with no opt-out provision. It's called the Health Legislation Amendment Information Sharing Bill 2023. It passed the lower house last week, and with serious concerns about privacy, patient autonomy, as well as cybersecurity, there are moves to seek to amend it in the upper house by the crossbench. If you feel strongly about this proposed legislation, Make sure you contact the Victorian Crossbench MPs and your local Upper House MP. It is my true delight and pleasure to welcome onto this program once again Dr. Richard Dennis, who is Executive Director of the Australia Institute. He's also an economist. And if only maybe a year ago, he was a chief economist at the Australia Institute. So he really does know what he's talking about when he's talking about the economy, as well as climate change and a whole range of other issues. So I can't wait to talk to Richard about many things. We are going to talk about federal COVID policy. Obviously, that would intersect with state policy as well. We'll talk about the Reserve Bank of Australia and its role in jacking up interest rates, and what the real causes of inflation are, according to the Australia Institute's new research that was released last week. So, without further ado, I welcome back onto the show Richard Dennis. Hi
1: there, Richard. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me on.
0: Can't wait to chat about these issues because I think that all of these issues really are affecting Australians right now in so many different ways, and it's not like economics is this... Thing outside of us. It feels like it's directly affecting how we live, work, what we can afford when we go to the supermarket. So we will tackle interest rates and inflation in just a moment. But one thing that is also affecting us every single day, but is not being talked about pretty much at all at the moment is COVID-19. It's something that we've been covering in, on this show with people like Brendan Crabb, who you were on a panel with on ABC 730. And you've also written a piece in for the monthly about it and I wanted to get a sense from you as to what triggered you to continue to engage in this debate when so many people are not when it's become not only something that people want to ignore but when people do enter a debate about it it becomes very toxic and quite ridiculous some of the the things that are thrown around by people who deny that it's a real problem
1: yeah. <laughs> Look, it's a great question. It's a surprising question in some sense, but um, it's a great question because no one else is asking it. Look, I, I guess I'm still interested in COVID because, because science, because data, <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's, it's killing. Last year, COVID killed more people than lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, car accidents and drownings combined. And in December last year, the federal government put out a press release about COVID, which was good. They also put out a press release about HIV and they also put out a press release about Japanese encephalitis. That would be one each. So, yeah, to the extent that hmm. science and evidence informs our decision making, to the extent that science and evidence plays a role in our policy, then I think what's happening with COVID is remarkable. But then again, perhaps not, because 30 years after promising to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we're still building new coal mines and new gas wells. We're not, we're not reducing them we're still increasing them. So, yeah, that both of those things frustrate me, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm consistent. I think we should pay attention to the science.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. It was something I brought up with a climate scientist uh, a few months ago. I was saying, do you see the parallels between the denial of science, between climate change and also COVID-19? And she absolutely could see that because she deals with that issue up close every single day. I wanted to address some of the stats that you just mentioned because I did see on Twitter the other day when we saw some statistics come out that apparently COVID-19 in Australia is now the third highest cause of death in the country. So things are absolutely increasing on that front and you say in your monthly piece that across last year, as you said, COVID-19 killed more people than lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, car accidents and drowning combined and in addition to the 15,000 deaths directly attributed to COVID, the ABS tells us that there were 20,000 more deaths last year than would usually be expected, largely due to the fact that people who have had COVID tend to die more quickly of the other diseases they have or, and I'll add this as well, they might die from things that they didn't have, which are things like a heart attack or stroke because, as we know, there are vascular risks that increase after COVID infection. These are things that I don't think many Australians are aware of, Richard, the excess deaths in particular, and that not only are there deaths directly attributed to COVID, but there are many more deaths than Australia, a highly rich and wealthy country, is now experiencing. And, and Brendan Crabb had put to me that excess deaths should be in the negative. I wonder what's your thought on, on that and the government's response to this and whether the government has changed its tone around the way that they talk about the impact of COVID-19 and deaths and illness.
1: Oh yeah, look, absolutely, and let's be clear in Australia, there's a reason that we spend enormous amounts of money, tens and tens of billions of dollars a year on health, uh, and that is that you know for for you know for most of our history, uh, we've kind of thought that helping keep people alive was a good idea. That's why we spend a fortune on expensive screening for breast and prostate cancer. That's why we spend a fortune on expensive screening for bowel cancer. Uh, That's why we spend so much money helping people who get sick and we keep them in hospital and we spend a lot of money looking after people to keep them alive. And that's always seemed to be a good idea, comma, except when it comes to COVID, in which case we just think differently. Uh, So, yeah, the fact that Perhaps people don't quite comprehend how significant it is that an infectious disease, an avoidable infectious disease that we have measures that could reduce is now our third biggest cause of death. Keep in mind that our biggest cause of death, things like heart disease, they take decades to cause. Hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, so we know what causes heart disease in most people, you know, some some young people uh, accidentally through, you know, very early in their life without behavioral indicators get sick and and, and die from heart disease. But the vast majority of uh, heart disease, for example, takes decades to accumulate. Um, COVID just showed up a couple of years ago and it's kind of killing people really very quickly. And that's, that's a brand new phenomena. And once upon a time, we were proud of our efforts to protect ourselves from it. Once upon a time, we were proud of our efforts to control it. And now we've, we've literally just let it rip. Uh, and, yeah, 20,000 people dying, you know, it's entirely up to Australia whether we care about that or not. But we, I guess we have to start asking the question, if we don't care about all the people dying from COVID, why are we still going through the performance art of mm. trying to prevent other diseases? Like what, what, what is the point of our health policy if we're unconcerned about something like 20,000 deaths from COVID?
0: And what's the point of the whole field of public health? Yeah, we might as well just cancel it. I don't know why we have it. It's a big failure of public health.
1: It, well, I hate to say it, it's not. It's a failure of our either collective will or our parliamentary will. Uh, I'm sorry to correct you, but I, I think the public health people are doing their bit. Um, they some have, of them. Not all uh, of them, though. Of them. I would say okay, there are
0: some people who are dissenting and, and yes. you know, say don't you don't need to wear a mask, masks don't work, yes. you know.
1: That, that's that's true, absolutely. Uh, but I guess my point is, the evidence is there. Mm. We're, choos- we're choosing not to act on it. Uh, and, and that is 100% consistent with with climate science. You know, we, we're just choosing to ignore it. Yet, you know, we're about to spend $250 billion, a quarter of a trillion dollars uh, on nuclear submarines that might come in handy in 30 years' time. Maybe, we're not sure, but better be safe than sorry. So we're willing to spend mm. a quarter of a trillion dollars on nuclear submarines just in case, but... Oh, you know, encourage people to wear masks in 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 indoor public spaces, or you know, spend money to clean up the air in our schools or our public buildings. Ah, oh, it's a bit crazy, Richard. You're overreacting there, son.
0: <laughs> you are. You're so alarmist, Richard. Um, I I wanted to point out one of those contradictions that you do in your piece, and that is the messaging around it. As we know, the government's message messaging and basically its actions indicate, hey, COVID's no big deal. It's just like the flu footnote it's not just like the flu so we don't need to do all of these public health interventions that we did before like social distancing masks indoors and on public transport etc air filtering ventilation but then they do come out and say hey, guys, we've now approved a booster vaccine. We've got two bivalent vaccines. One's on the way. Please go out and get your booster if you haven't been infected in the last six months or you haven't been boosted in the last six months. So I think a lot of people are wondering, well, why would I go get boosted if the government says that COVID's not a big deal anymore?
1: Yeah. And look, absolutely. And as a consequence of that, you know, we've we've got some of the most incredible technology ever invented in some of the quickest time ever invented, Mm. that is vaccines against COVID, you know, literally expiring on the shelf because the, the health promotion message is both well, it's it's muted and conflicted, and I guess I'd emphasise both elements of that. A, we're not really talking about COVID at all, and B, when we do, we're talking about it in the confused manner you just described. So, yeah, it's 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 remarkable. And the you know the the fourth dose booster vaccines in Australia, the the percentages are really low, and you know now Australia has one of the highest death rates from COVID in the. De- developed world. One of the highest. But yeah, we're not we're not talking about that.
0: No, not at all. You point out some of the economic issues of COVID in your piece as well, and obviously the fact that the government rolled back access to paid leave for people who didn't actually have the ability to isolate and to take time off if they were infectious, particularly those workers who are casual, for example, and wouldn't have those entitlements. But you also point out that long COVID is making a serious dent on the economy as well. So I wondered, could you talk us through some of your thoughts about the economic effects of of COVID and long COVID?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the obvious, well, let's be clear the, the health effects are the most important. Yeah. But when, when people die, they don't go to work <laughs> and, and make stuff and they don't go to the shops and buy stuff. And, and when people are really sick, uh, with COVID, uh, they're, they're not at work, uh, So, and, and when they get long COVID, they have to stay off work for long periods of time. Now, people who are quite sick usually need someone to care for them, which means it's not just the people that are sick that are out of the workforce. It's the people that they are caring for them. So kids, kids with COVID need a, a parent to stay at home and look after them, for example. So what we're talking about here is uh, because we have very, very high numbers of COVID cases in Australia, not that you'd know it, we've got very large numbers of people who are sick, uh, in isolation and or and/or suffering from long COVID, uh, and 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 we're talking hundreds of thousands of people here in a normal week, which means that the the economic effects of this are really quite significant. No one's talking about COVID as a driver of a skills shortage. No one's talking about COVID as uh, as a as a driver of low labour force participation. But the reality is, when when that many people are are quite sick for for long periods of time, uh, we're going to have real economic consequences. And then with long COVID, it's not just the the participation, it's not just the inability to work, but we don't have a welfare system or a health system uh, or, uh, or a sick leave system that's designed to cope with tens, hundreds potentially of thousands of what would usually be uh, healthy, wealthy, middle-class people getting sick and staying sick and not being able to work for significant periods of time. What happens to people with a mortgage if they get long COVID? Um, you know, yeah. we just – we haven't had to grapple with – and don't get me wrong, uh, we've always had a uh, disease burden, we've always had uh, people, um, you know, losing their homes because they lost their jobs because they were injured or couldn't couldn't work – but we're not used to that happening at mass scale for years at a time and and that's that's emerging now
0: absolutely and richard you say that solutions exist and we've listed some of them but you're saying here that the argument that many might put in against yours would be, oh, well, we don't want to go into lockdowns again. We don't want to do all of those things. We, we were told we just had to get the vaccine and we've done our bit, you know. Then we can get back to normal. That was what we were sold. We know that that was a furphy, what we were sold. It wasn't true because vaccines, although they're excellent at preventing serious disease and death in many cases, they don't prevent transmission. So what are some of those solutions that you see and that so many others like you see are the easy, minimal impositions that can be put into place to reduce transmission, to reduce the health burden and the economic burden?
1: Ah oh, yeah well as as you say I mean it's, it's it's startlingly simple it's it's bizarre that it needs repeating but it, mm. it clearly does um, well people should get vaccinated uh, and and they should uh, get boosted as soon as they're eligible and as you said the new bivariate boosters are, uh, are even better than the old ones uh, they 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 slow transmission but they as you said they don't prevent transmission but they're very good at stopping people dying which is a usually a very good good thing um, so step one uh, get vaccinated step two get boosted step three uh, all of the social distancing norms that we we were that we all became so familiar with um, still work masks particularly in crowded spaces and indoor spaces uh, avoid crowded indoor spaces sit outdoors if you can yeah, open windows, um, you know, make sure that uh, people around you are respecting your personal space, respect other people's personal spaces, install air cleaning and filtration. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that governments can be doing, that schools can be doing, that, that public buildings can be doing. And, and to be clear, other countries are doing this stuff. Um, you know, mm. you were talking about, you're talking about Professor Brendan Crabb, I mean, I'm still struck by hearing him say that in the 18th and 19th century, cities decided to clean up their water and it was the sort of, you know, best thing for human health ever. Uh, He thinks that the 21st century challenge, if we're going to live this closely in such dense populations, we need to clean up our air. Even if it wasn't for COVID, it would be a great idea to clean up our air.
0: And we've heard that testimony at the Long COVID Inquiry, which has been happening in the last couple of weeks by people like Professor Jeff Hamner from AusSage, who's an expert in clean air. There were many experts there talking about this. And it was interesting to see that the panel were really thinking, oh, well, that's pretty hard. That's like a big thing. How hard will it be to change our buildings, to, you know, monitor our air? And it seemed like there wasn't a particularly strong appetite for those kind of interventions. You know, if you go to Denmark and you want to go to the cinema, you'll often see a CO2 monitor number outside the cinema to know what the levels are in the actual cinema so just how well ventilated the space is these are things which seem pretty easy to implement that a government could easily regulate for but it doesn't seem that australia has the same appetite as some of those other european countries and i just wondered you know why is there a bit of a disconnect between australia and some of the other countries i'm not saying all because obviously the uk and the us are particularly bad at this but there are other countries doing something
1: yeah, look, it's a great question. You know, why is Australia still building coal mines when the rest of the world's trying to move away from coal? Why is Australia buying nuclear submarines at a time where a lot of countries are trying to get more, um, you know, invest more in nuclear non-proliferation? Um, look, democracies are a strange, strange things, but I do think that a big part of it in Australia is that, you um, because the previous government made such a mess, uh, the Morrison government made such a mess of the vaccine rollout and, uh, and and the opening up of restrictions and the free rat tests or the refusal to offer free rat tests, because the coalition made such a mess of it, uh, they just don't want to talk about this issue. And because they don't want to talk about it, Labor is under absolutely no pressure to do anything. Because if Labor, you know, unilaterally sort of said, we're going to try to help fix this problem or we're going to set some targets here for boosters or anything, excuse me, any goal that Labor sets for itself, can be used in two ways. One, uh, they can be attacked by people that think COVID's no big deal, but two, they can be attacked for underperforming if they don't achieve their own goals. So, unfortunately, democracy really only works when, when there's a contest of ideas, when there's pressure. And when there's bipartisan consensus to run dead on an issue, whether it's whether it's COVID or coal mines, when there's that bipartisan consensus, it's very hard for people to very hard to convince the media that something's important. You know, if the if mm-hmm. the Prime Minister and the opposition leader both shrug their shoulders, it's it's as if in Australia that means it's not important. Well, That means there's a lot of frustrated climate scientists and and a lot of frustrated public health experts out there because uh, the fact that the Prime Minister or Mr Dutton don't want to talk about COVID or climate or COVID or coal doesn't mean we've fixed the problem. It just means we're ignoring it.
0: Yeah, excellent point, Richard. Let's jump into inflation and interest rates because this is, as I said, it's affecting people directly just like COVID is. And the Australia Institute has been working very hard on this topic for a long time. I know we've talked about it in the past, as well as, you know, the Reserve Bank's remit, its kind of reason for being and its role in dealing with the economy and inflation. And we have just heard Philip Lowe, the Reserve Bank of Australia's governor, warn about a, quote, wage price spiral, which sounds scary, doesn't it? But the Australia Institute has released a new report saying that essentially there is evidence instead of a profit price spiral, not a wage price spiral. Richard, could you tell us what this all means? Could you go back to the beginning, I guess, and tell us what is really underpinning inflation here and what your research is telling us?
1: Yeah. um, So, uh, in Australia, as as we've just been talking about, it's, 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 it's wonderful living in a democracy. We can worry about any problems we want. We're not worried about climate. We're not worried about COVID, but we're very, very worried about inflation, very worried about inflation. So we we have a war against inflation. And in our war against inflation, the Reserve Bank has increased interest payments on the average mortgage by thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year. And we take that for granted. That's how important the fight against inflation is, that an unelected reserve bank governor uh, can increase the cost of people's mortgage repayments. and, And we all just say, fair enough we we can't we couldn't possibly spend money to tackle climate change we couldn't possibly inconvenience people to fight covid but we can we can lift mortgage repayments by $10,000 a year on young families and and that's a small price to pay for winning the fight against inflation so we need to kind of get it into perspective first that we we as a society are very willing and able to bear costs when something's important And clearly, our uh, our governments think inflation is very important. So there's there's that, and then there's the is you know is it actually going to work? Now the problem is uh, most of our inflation for the last 18 months has been imported inflation. We've had record energy prices thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, We've had imported materials, particularly building materials uh, from China because China's had uh, production problems thanks to COVID. So the prices of things we've imported have gone up uh, and, and that's caused a lot of inflation. And increasing interest rates isn't going to make the world price of energy cheaper. So we've, But now we're kind of moving into stage two of our inflation where we're seeing an enormous profit grabs from companies like Qantas, for example, lifting the price of airfares way above the cost of uh, any increases in the cost of fuel. And, and their enormous profit grabs, their big price rises, are now driving this inflation. But rather than say we've got profit-driven inflation or rather than say we've got, you know, imported inflation, uh, thanks to world events beyond our control, we've kind of had this phony conversation for a year about, oh, we better be careful we don't have a wage price spiral where we increase wages and wages will drive inflation because wages are too high. Well, actually, real wages have fallen faster than ever. And inflation's risen faster than it has in decades. So it was always absurd to suggest that wages were driving inflation or were likely to drive inflation. Uh, But absurd or not, that's the nonsense we've had to put up with. And our our recent data just clearly shows that it's, it's firms lifting prices really fast, not because of wages, not even because of costs, just to increase their profits. That's what's driving a lot of our inflation.
0: Absolutely. As you talk about and as many have discussed in the last few days, we have had wages data come out. And it's obvious that wages are not keeping up with inflation. That's kind of stating the bleeding obvious. But as you say, real wages have fallen. And in fact, they fell in Australia 4.5% in 2022, which is the largest fall on record. So, Really, uh, Australians are doing it tough because it's harder to afford things when your wages aren't going up, they're going down. And also, prices obviously, due to inflation, are going up. You say that corporates and big business have been posting big profits. The report by the Australia Institute does report some of these particular companies like, as you say, Qantas, who posted a $1.4 billion half-year profit, which meant they tripled revenues. Woolworths posted a 25% rise in profits on Wednesday. On Tuesday, Coles posted an 11% half-year profit. Santos, the gas and resources company, posted a 221% annual profit. Ampol reported a 30% increase in first half net profit, and the Commonwealth Bank, of course, who is certainly benefiting from rising interest rates, posted a record $5.1 billion profit, which is up 9%. Richard, that's pretty overwhelming when you hear that, and it seems like daylight robbery. How is this allowed to happen? And I guess what can anyone do about it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a tough time to be a, a, a big shareholder in, in Australian companies. It's, uh, yeah, post-COVID, they're really struggling, aren't they? Mm. Um, yeah, look, uh, so profit is the difference between, you know, the total revenue a firm gets and, and the total costs of, of making their product. And when you can increase prices faster than your costs are going up, you, you make a lot of profit and let's be clear, that's the job of companies. Uh, they, they have a legal obligation to maximise profits for their shareholders, uh, not to make Australia nice, not to make Australia fair, not to look after low-income earners, not to be loyal to their customers. Their, their job is to maximise profit, and they're doing a very, very good job of it at the moment. Uh, and we rather than uh, congratulate them and say, aren't you doing a great job? And, you know, that's ba- that's good news for you. It's it's bad news for your customers. It's bad news for your workers, but well done. Instead of just openly admit what's happening, yeah, we, we still have this nonsense that, oh, we better be careful not to let wages rise too fast or that could cause us trouble down the track. So, yeah, our, our research focuses on the role of profits driving inflation. What can we do about that? Well, in the short term, I, I guess what we have to we, – we, we need to talk about what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't keep increasing interest rates and keeping wages low in order to slow down the profits of these companies. That's not going to work. So we need to stop doing the dumb things. Uh, so that's the sort of urgent uh, thing we need to do, like stop stop pretending that wages uh, are behind our inflation. And then what can we do? Well, I think we need to look at the market power of these firms. We have to look at how it is that we've wound up with uh, four major banks with so much market power and so little competition, two major airlines with so much market power and so little competition, uh, two major grocers with so much market power and so little competition in the long run competition between these firms is good for workers it's good for customers it's good for productivity growth but it's going to take years or decades to unscramble the mess caused by the last 20 years of just kind of letting uh, of deregulation and of, of letting big firms merge so yeah, we've really we've really caused ourselves some trouble. We're creating one of the most concentrated economies in the world. So that's what we need to fix, but in the short term we have to avoid false solutions like if only we put enough pressure on on young families, that'll stop inflation. No, it won't.
0: Indeed. Some of the really interesting stats from the report that I just wanted to draw out for those listening, if if you haven't heard it already. As of the September quarter in 2022, which is the most recent data available, Australian businesses increased prices by a total of $160 billion per year, over and above their higher expenses for labour, taxes and other inputs, and over and above profits generated by growth in real economic output what i found even more particularly interesting was that excess corporate profits according to this report account for 69% of additional inflation beyond the rba's target and you were saying that rising unit labor costs so you know human workers account for just 18% of that inflation the pace of inflation would have fallen within the RBA's target inflation ban if this all hadn't have happened with the profits, corporate profits. And we're talking about large businesses here in particular. Richard, what does that mean when the average person hears it? Because I know I might be saying a lot of gobbledygook to some people and then others might have understood what I just said.
1: Yeah, so we measure inflation through something called the consumer price index. So every, uh, you know, the, the the Australian Bureau of Statistics are out there looking at all the things that we spend our money on, uh, from our lettuce and our coffee to our rent and our petrol. And, and they calculate the consumer price index. And uh, so we know that we can see the price of petrol go up and down. Uh, the consumer price index allows us to keep track of kind of what's happening to prices in general. Now, the Reserve Bank wants to keep inflation at 2 to 3%. Not 25 to 35 not 2 to 4 not one5 to 25 these are arbitrary numbers, but we've, we've got this – the RBA has it in their head that 2 to 3% inflation is the right range, and they've been trying to keep inflation in that range for a long time. By the way, some countries don't have a range. Some countries have a different range. These are arbitrary numbers, and we need to never forget that. Anyway, inflation was below the 2 to 3% target range for a long time, and no one really cared. No one said, gee, the Reserve Bank's failing, you know, we need to stimulate the economy, get some more inflation, get the economy growing faster. Uh, but they didn't do that. And instead, the RBA just kind of bumbled along. Now inflation is well above that 2 to 3% range, and the RBA has completely hit panic stations. And uh, the 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 only kind of lever that they want to pull, the the main lever we've given them is interest rates. So they're pulling on this interest rate lever on the idea that if they increase people's mortgage payments enough, people will won't be able to go and buy a coffee, won't be able to go and uh, buy a new television, won't be able to go and buy a whole bunch of other things. So if people are too broke to buy things, then demand for things will fall. And in turn, prices won't continue to rise as much. So that's what the RBA's kind of logic is. But what our research shows is that what's driving the inflation isn't consumers rushing out to spend lots of money. It's, it's companies just increasing their prices to, in order to increase their profits. Uh, and there's no law to stop them doing that. But it seems pretty weird that we would rely so heavily on controlling interest rates to control consumer spending to control inflation when the thing that's driving the inflation isn't consumer spending, the thing that's driving consu- uh, the thing that's driving uh, inflation is firms jacking up their prices a lot faster than their costs are rising.
0: Yeah, I wondered, If interest rates do keep increasing, as the RBA says they will, and as you said they shouldn't, is there a risk of recession or any other even more damaging effects than, of course, taking money away from consumers?
1: Absolutely, that's a risk. I mean, in 1991, we had the recession we had to have because the Reserve Bank at that time was so worried about inflation, it it thought a a good a good recession would be good for us all. The recession we had to have. So yeah, if we keep increasing interest rates enough, we could actually get enough consumers to cut so much spending that firms have to start laying off large numbers of staff. Uh, and by definition, you know that if if the economy starts to contract. Then, by definition, that's a recession, and we expect unemployment to fall, and uh, and all sorts of other bad things to happen. So. Yeah, it's hard. But, you know, fish can't taste the water. It swims in. And we're so used to hearing that the Reserve Bank increased interest rates that it kind of doesn't shock us to hear it. But remember that the reason we can't tackle climate change is because it might inconvenience some people and cost them money. And the reason we can't tackle COVID is it might inconvenience some people. But when it comes to tackling inflation, we will increase your mortgage repayments by 10000 bucks a year and we don't give it a second thought. Well, we should give it a second thought, especially because it's unlikely to work. Mm.
0: It was interesting to see that an ABC reporter, Gareth Hutchins, had written a piece in mid- in the middle of February, on February the 12th, with the heading, Is There a Better Way to Kill Inflation Than Raising Interest Rates? Now, you've obviously made the case, as there's clearly a better way. He was saying that, well, if the RBA is going to keep raising interest rates every single time. Shouldn't we be not giving all of that money away to the banks so that they can have higher profits and pass it on to their shareholders? Shouldn't we be putting that money away for those people who've basically had that income taken from them and put it into something like superannuation so they can't touch it, but they'll get it in the future down the track? That's obviously not you know, a great fix in the sense that wouldn't it be great if the RBA didn't raise interest rates. But what do you think about that idea that perhaps when we're in a period like this, that those interest rates could be quarantined in some way, like the the money from it?
1: Yeah, look, I, that's actually the original idea behind compulsory superannuation. Uh, back in the 90s, the ACTU was pushing for a wage rise, an economy-wide wage rise, uh, the Labor government at the time uh, and the Reserve Bank at the time thought that a wage rise was badly timed and might cause inflation. So the compromise was that workers got a pay rise, but the pay rise was given in the form of compulsory superannuation, that is retirement savings that they couldn't get their hands on for decades, instead of immediate cash in their pocket. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, there's, there's all sorts of creative ways that we can try to resolve these problems. But to be clear, if the thing that's causing inflation is profits, if the mm. thing that's causing inflation is firms lifting their prices uh, far faster than their wages are growing, far faster than their other costs are growing, then no matter what we do on the consumer side, uh, it's not going to be a very good way to control that inflation. And and there's the risk that the more we do to restrict consumer spending, whether it's through... Uh, whether it's through compulsory savings or interest rates, the more we do on that front, uh, the greater the risk we might end up causing a recession.
0: Yeah. So then if we think about, okay, uh, it's caused by this profit price spiral and they're clearly companies, big companies, aren't going to voluntarily reduce the amount of profit they're making, what is the role of government? Can they intervene at all, whether it's in the profit price spiral or in things that are typically within their remit? (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's lots they can do. Uh, we, you know, the governments can directly push some prices down, like the consum- uh like the, you know, childcare. We made it free during COVID, and it lowered the consumer price index quite significantly. Um, uh, so there's direct things governments can do to lower the prices of some things. I said before, there's competition policy, uh, which actually will take a long time, but is very important. We've got to stop letting big firms merge. We've got to stop letting big firms accumulate so much money. Market power that it's easy for them to jack prices up like this, uh, and then of course we can introduce super profits taxes, uh, and 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 that means if we if we can't stop them making the money, we can tax it back, and we can and we can use that money to help people cope with the with the rising cost of living caused by the profits.
0: Yeah, it was interesting because it reminds me, obviously, of a very related issue: superannuation tax concessions. And Zoe Daniel had said about that particular issue, while she's cautiously open to discussing that, she wanted to see something like a windfall profits tax. And that's something that we've discussed on this show before. Do you think that that would make a big difference?
1: I think, well, it won't make a big difference in the short term. It just won't. Um, if, If firms are making a windfall profit by charging us record prices for our groceries, then that's hurting us today. A windfall profit allows us to collect some of that money that's taken from us and give it back. Uh, but um, uh, and and a hundred percent support introducing one. But in the short term, we're gonna uh, we're gonna need different things. But uh, I hate to say, it, in the short term, I'm I'm gonna have to wrap it up. I'm sorry, Amy. My next uh, my next interview is calling me, so I'm very sorry.
0: That's okay. <laughs>
1: All right. Thanks, Amy. Thanks.
0: thanks, Richard. Bye. I've just been speaking with Dr. Richard Dennis. He's executive director of the Australia Institute, and we've just been talking about. The real cause of inflation and uh, rising interest rates, as well as the Reserve Bank, its role in the whole issue, and COVID 19 policy as well. This is a podcast from Triple R, an
2: independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported
3: radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, Hit up rrr.org.au
1: to find out how.
0: You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 RFM with me, Amy Mullins. And gosh, I'm so excited about this next interview. I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Damien Smith. Damien is an art historian, an art critic and many other things. Uh, he has been the person behind the book The Jeff Raby Collection of Contemporary Chinese Art. He edited the book. He also wrote a number of the essays in this book, and no doubt he's done a lot of work within the collection that is The Jeff Raby Collection of Contemporary Chinese Art. It is a very special one because it features about 174 artworks that Jeff Raby AO the former Australian ambassador to China donated to La Trobe University, and a number of them have been on display uh, in the last few months in Bendigo, so that's also been a great opportunity for people to see some of these works up close, but you get also a chance to do that by looking at this beautiful book, which you can buy. Uh, It's been published through Black Ink, the imprint being La Trobe University Press, and we are going to be talking about some of the themes that run throughout this collection of work of artworks, as well as the different artists and their backstories, and what it tells us about contemporary China, also about Chinese history and Chinese art. And no doubt we'll also be talking about the brilliant Jeff Raby. Who is so multi talented, and I guess you could call him a polymath, really. He's got so many different interests and passions. So, I welcome onto the show Dr. Damien Smith. Hi there, Damien, and thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Good morning, Amy, and great to be here.
0: Oh, it's so wonderful to talk about this collection, and um, what a gift it is that Jeff Raby has done this for Australia, really, because He's been in such a unique position, hasn't he, to be able to collect contemporary Chinese art and oftentimes when these artists were just emerging, were at the beginning of their careers in some cases and so he's been, you know, purchasing these works, you know, well before they became big names.
3: Jeff's story is really interesting and, uh, you know, we can talk a bit, about that. But I think also the fact that he has donated the collection is a real reflection of the fact that he has this deep personal investment in cultivating a really positive relationship between Australia and China. And and that really bears out in the gift of those works to La Trobe University. Um, but, you know, Jeff was in China in the 1980s. He was working in uh, the in the embassy uh, in the economics division, and uh, that that really reflects his training as an economist. Um, but I think the really interesting thing is, and he said it to me early on, was that he would have to go to government briefings on the state of the economy in China. But what he found was that he could see more of what was going on by being out on the street by mingling with people and especially by uh, hanging out with the artists and coming to see that there was a really big shift that was taking place away from the old rigid communist system to situation and this is really under Deng Xiaoping and the uh, the opening up of the economy where individuals were starting to gain their own voice and uh, and express it through through things like art and music so that was one of the reasons that Jeff was so fascinated but I think at heart Jeff's uh, as much as he's an ambassador, he's a kind of bohemian at heart. And he stayed friends with the artists that he met in the 1980s. And you can really, you know, travelling with him and visiting the artists, I could just see the, you know, the depth of connection there. And it was, it was very moving, very moving just to see those, those long relationships and relationships that went through pretty tumultuous uh, periods of Chinese history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we've since seen uh, a new president in China who has certainly solidified his rule through the latest Congress, uh, that being Xi Jinping, who you say at the beginning of the book features, I guess, in the history of the publication of this book in its different iterations um, with a photograph that was taken of Xi Jinping at Kakadu National Park. And I was so interested in that little anecdote Uh, and what it tells us about, I guess, not only Australia-China relations but the way that the Chinese see their leader and the way that their leader is
3: portrayed. That image of Xi Jinping and Jeff Raby uh, at a a kind of roadside pub in Kakadu is so interesting and it was the image that the Chinese censors were very uncomfortable with. They said it's too casual an image of the leader to be uh, featured in uh, a publication in China and uh, and I did say you know it's actually quite a good news story this is a story about Xi Jinping's interest in aboriginal art and uh, he expressed that desire to Jeff to travel to Kakadu to look at the at the the cave paintings that he'd been reading about And uh, when they go to the caves at Nulunji and they meet the the TO, traditional owner, uh, Jeffrey Lee, uh, this is the moment that uh, Xi Jinping uh, also discovers that Jeffrey Lee is a member of a tribe of one person. And so you have this meeting between somebody who's from a tribe of one and somebody who will become the leader of the most populous tribe on earth. And that kind of, you know, it's hard not to uh, imagine that uh, Xi Jinping, who often refers to the, the century of humiliation and the impact of colonization, must have really reflected on, you know, the impact of colonization in Australia as, you know, embodied in, in that situation.
0: Absolutely. I am still reminded of, you know, the British and their role in China, their very negative role, Mm. and uh, the number of artworks that were looted as well as stolen. Um, I wanted to take us back, I guess, to those who don't know Jeff Raby, just to give them a little bit of background into the man, his not only professional life but also his, I guess, personal mode of being. And you would know this better than anyone else, I'm sure. But for those who don't know, Jeff Raby was Australia's ambassador to China between 2007 to 2011. Uh, He was ambassador under a number of prime ministers. Obviously, that was a tumultuous period of time here in Australia locally. But he certainly did kind of behave or not behave, but approach the role in a different way to a lot of other ambassadors did. And you can tell that through his way of focusing on the arts, among many other things, bringing in uh, not only artists in the visual arts but also musicians into his circle of influence. Indeed. Could you tell us a little bit about his connection to China through his role as ambassador and the unique way that he approaches that, that culture yeah. and the exchange between Australia and China?
3: Sure, well, look, you know Jeff is a larger than life character, and uh you know he he would probably um describe himself as a bon vivant he's somebody who knows how to have a good time uh and he enjoys you know socializing he enjoys throwing parties, his parties at the Australian embassy were somewhat um legendary <laughs> and uh you know he uh he employed uh, music groups like the Uyghur rock group, Asker and Grey Wolf to perform at the, at the embassy. Um, and so, you know, he's somebody who, he doesn't take a kind of a dry approach to being an ambassador and, uh, and it's a very celebratory kind of way of doing business. And it's very hard not to be, uh, to be drawn into that. Um, there's, there is an anecdote in the book where he is visiting uh, uh, Ray Hughes, the art dealer Ray Hughes in Sydney who had a similar way of operating and it was in Sydney that Jeff introduced Chinese contemporary art to um, the Chinese ambassador to Australia and that was somebody who was unlikely to be uh, hanging out in bohemian circles in China. So those kinds of situations are really valuable because they you know, open up all kinds of dialogue and Jeff's just the person to be doing that kind of thing.
0: Absolutely. And one also kind of interesting fact that I knew from my interview with Jeff a while ago, but many may not know, is that he's actually travelled to every province in China and he did so while he was ambassador, something he was very proud of. But for those who don't really understand the scope of China, you share in the book, you know, just how wide and and expansive China is, but also how many borders it shares with other countries as well.
3: Yes, I don't have those figures right to hand. Something like 14 countries that border China. uh, This is an enormously complex, uh, you know, thing to manage uh, for the Chinese administration. And Jeff has been really interested in the complexity of that situation, China bordering, uh, South Asia, Kazakhstan, Russia, India, uh, Nepal, Bhutan. And he's traveled in all of those provinces, all 33 provinces. And even now he just recently he was up on the the indian side of the border where there was that skirmish with india indian mm. and chinese soldiers quite recently and uh, he's writing a book now on the stans so central asia kazakhstan uzbekistan and so on and how there will be a sort of a contestation for resources in those regions in the in the not too distant future so the the art that he has collected uh, you know, includes works from Tibet, from Xinjiang, from Inner Mongolia, and it really, you know, going through that collection, you get a sense of the multicultural nature of China, not just a sort of singular Han identity, but one that's brimming with all sorts of crossovers and, uh, and complexities.
0: Indeed. And the book says that there are 55 ethnic minorities in China. So it is very culturally uh, and ethnically diverse. It's Mm -hmm. something that I think a lot of Australians might find hard to wrap their heads around, but I'm sure that those who visit China would appreciate it, certainly. Um, Let's dive into some of the aspects of this collection. And also, I guess, the the framework for collecting that Jeff Raby might have had, whether it was formal or informal, mm. you know, how does Jeff Raby and how did Jeff Raby approach collecting art?
3: It's a really good question. And actually, when uh, when we we met, uh, Jeff said to me, "Look, I really need you to tell me what I've been doing because <laughs> I haven't collected with any theme or anything, you know." in mind. I've just c- picked up the things that I really like and sometimes just because I have a social connection to an artist. And he he disavowed uh, having any sort of uh, anything in mind when he collected. But what I found, and, you know, that was the, the, the process where I, I go through the collection, I measure all of the works, I catalogue everything, and it very readily became apparent to me that there were some very strong dominant themes, uh, particularly uh, issues of politics, power. Uh, sexuality was another theme that was really major in the collection. And so I... Uh, I started to construct a narrative around those those master themes, and then break, and then underneath that, breaking it down into, um, for instance, you know, collecting it on the on the periphery of that great empire, from Tibet and Xinjiang and so on, and then uh, other subsets like looking at um, at mediums and uh, and history of China, that sort of thing.
0: Mm, Indeed. And the chapter titles are very revealing as to Mm. some of the themes of the collection, and we will go through them. Um, One particular artist who certainly appears in a number of the chapters Mm -hmm. is an artist by the name of Guo Jian. And he, I would love to hear about because he sounds like a fascinating character and also clearly is a very talented
3: artist. Guo is a is a remarkable artist, and in fact, we were just talking about the 55 ethnic minorities. Uh, Guo Jian is from Guizhou in southern China, um, and uh, but he's somebody who joined the army, and he also trained in the official propaganda style of painting. Um, and you've mentioned one of his works, you know, prior um, a work called the Cast and the Crew, which is mm. a black and white painting of a group of soldiers and at first glance you just sort of think oh this is a very casual scene of Chinese soldiers but if you if you have a look at the the insignia on their their hats you'll see that some of them are Chinese and some of them are Vietnamese and this is really an allusion to uh, the the war between China and Vietnam and that was a war that's not widely known um, in the way of the American Vietnam War. Uh, but it's also a war that China was came the worse off and were um, kicked out of Vietnam. So uh, it's a sort of image that, um, you know, there are kind of subtext in that image about power. And, uh, um, you know, you really have to see the painting, but, um, it's about that situation and he was actually involved in that war.
0: Mm, And they're very much smiling, like a kind of candid photo where Mm. they're, you know, they have their fingers up, a lot of them with the peace sign. Uh, They look like they're having a great time together. And it also, to me, says, well, are there really good and bad? Is there really good and evil in every war? You know, that the the Mm -hmm. cast and crew, the people who are the soldiers, the battle pieces on the ground, you know, a lot of them often see that there's a lot of blurred lines between sides and they often end up finding themselves at times to empathise with the enemy.
3: Indeed. And it's funny that you should be mentioning uh, ambiguity in Guo Jian's work because, in fact, the reason that he had to leave China, in fact was thrown out of China, um, and he, he did have an Australian passport at that point, uh, was that he he has an absolute, uh, you know, emphatic stance on the events that occurred in Tiananmen in 1989. And he made that uh, crystal clear on the anniversary of, of the uprising. Um, when he uh, you know, produced a sculpture which was a, a diorama of Tiananmen and he covered it in rotting pig meat and then invited the foreign journalists in. And uh, needless to say, uh, that, was, uh, that was a gesture that was just really not, not accepted by the authorities in China. And, uh, and he now lives in Sydney.
0: Indeed, and he's still, you know, putting out a lot of work and we will get to some of his other works in just a moment. So let's park that for now, mm-hmm. um, but let's also talk about some of those other pieces in that chapter that's looking at some of the political um, issues and and political pop art as mm-hmm. it might be termed. There are some other ones in there like um, a 20 mouse by Hua Jimming,
2: yes.
0: and uh, there's also an interesting couple of series by Qian Shan Chun. Could you tell us about those?
3: Yeah, so the work by uh, Hua Ming, 20 Maos, is, as you can imagine, a grid of uh, 20 images of Mao Zedong. Now, those the, those sorts of images that one associates with Mao Zedong, those kind of uh, iconic images of propaganda, the 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 rules for artists who were painting Mao were very, very strict. And so much so, it was it's very similar to how images of the Buddha was painted. Now, we know the term geometry, but applied to the painting of icons, we call that iconometry, so a very strict geometry. And in, in one of those images of Mao, you can start to see a bit of that gridding taking place. So overall, the effect is, is one of kind of deconstruction and sort of pulling apart this icon. And, uh, and you can start to see that it breaks down into a kind of psychedelic uh, kind of aspect or, you know, the disappearance of Mao. Um, and it's, it's really a kind of critique of what people were required to accept in the cultural sphere for so long. And uh, that work is dated 2008. Uh, which is really in that period where artists were starting to, uh, you know, mock some of that political iconography.
0: Mm. And there are some others that are quite, I don't know, vibrant, I would say, and and have that pop visuality to it. So um, if we look at Li Da Peng, and he has a, a lot of pig heads you know there's a pig motif that goes through some of his works in this collection um you know it has a lot of I don't know it says a lot it's very expressive it kind of comes off the page in this book and I'm sure it's even more impressive in person could you tell us about those works and that particular artist and their approach
3: sure lee pung's work is really vibrant uh it's quite large scale as well when you see the paintings in the flesh they're very uh vigorously painted and uh, more so than it comes across in the book but he's got that that kind of classic uh, propaganda style of painting, but these images of pigs are really kind of lampooning uh, prestige projects. There's a uh, a pig in a spacesuit, you know, that's mocking the uh, uh, you know the the space program in China. There's this image of the gilded age, where the the pig is almost drowning in golden objects. And uh, these are very, very ironical works and I think that people readily pick up on the message of, um, you know, uh, somebody having a bit of a uh, a playful dig at uh, at those kinds of projects in China.
0: Mm, And they span from 1997 to
3: 2002 to
0: 2007. Mm. So that was also quite interesting to me. How are they received... You know, by Chinese in particular, I know that clearly the context that artists operate in in China has really evolved across the 80s, 90s, and thousands. Mm. How do some of these artists navigate that
3: world? Like I've had some very interesting conversations with, uh, with with my Chinese colleagues and with Jeff in regard to Li Pung's work. Jeff has often mentioned to me that uh, you know the irony of these works are often lost on on Chinese audiences, which I think is quite interesting. Um, but of course, that whole uh, arena of political pop uh, and cynical realism has, at times, you know, really. Uh, brought the artist into conflict with uh, with authorities who recognise that this is an attack on uh, on party policy, um, you know. So so those kinds of things do certainly take place, but outside of China, those those works have really been elevated and uh, and celebrated. And I think it's complex because, of course, that's a very important part of Chinese art, uh, you know, contemporary art. But it's not the only aspect of Chinese contemporary art. And that's where I think that that continual uh, perception by Western commentators that Chinese art is simply um, a, a confrontation with authority it really reduces it to a kind of unsophisticated or unnuanced way of thinking about it. And that's something we really wanted to bring out in the book is that if you go beyond that, there are so many other things going on in Chinese art uh, that's not just political. And uh, and I hope that that's sort of come across in the various chapters that we've put together. It
0: certainly does. I remember reading about uh, a section where you essentially were saying that art in the past, certainly in Europe, but also elsewhere with the avant-garde, it was often used as a kind of tool for politics, a weapon and something Mm. that was used um, to aid political movements, whereas in China that is not what it is. It's quite reductive, as you say, to say that that's the role of Chinese contemporary art and that really it has its own value and its Mm. own purpose beyond any of that.
3: I think... You know, one of the chapters that we we um, put together, tradition and change, the six arts in modern times, was really, uh, you know, inspired by the idea of the six arts that were developed during the Zhou dynasty, and um, you know, these were artists or well scholars rather who felt that there were certain accomplishments that one needed to to master. Uh, such as music, calligraphy, mathematics, but also things like archery, um, and and the enactment of rites. So, and the, the reason I mention the rites in particular is that sometimes when we see Chinese performance art, the tendency is to say, "Oh, here is a Chinese artist who has picked up." on a Western mode of practice of, of, uh, performance art. And there is a sort of a mimicking going on here, but actually, if you look at, uh, you know, the history of, of, um, ritual and the performing of rites in China, and then you compare it, for example, with an artist like, uh, Kang Shin who famously, you know, prostrates himself on the ground and would also, uh, put his tongue in close contact with the surfaces that he's near he would lick things uh these are these are kind of um these prostrations are rites that go back in a long way in chinese history
0: that's so fascinating to say that he um there is a piece there digital pigment print by kang xing uh, communication series number four london which is uh, very illustrative of what you've just said for anyone Mm. wondering uh, let's talk about a bit about that chapter given that you've raised it because there mm. were some that particularly stuck out to me and obviously calligraphy and ink uh, certainly has played a big role in Chinese history and there's a lot of pieces that feature calligraphy and ink on paper. Uh, yeah. One that really stood out to me, uh, which was quite striking, was by Song Ling uh, called... Cox comb flower Celosia cristata from 2013, which was an ink on paperwork. Would you be able to if de- describe it for us in the best way that you can? Because I find it quite difficult to describe, but it's uh, so fascinating to look at.
3: It's uh, such an interesting work. And also how that uh, came into the collection. Song Ling is a very, very well-known artist. But he's, but not for this style of painting. However, uh, I think Jeff was at an auction, and actually the artist uh, Shen, said to Jeff, "That's a Song Ling. You've got to buy that." And so he, that's how it came into the collection. And it's a, it's a very uh, abstract work, and it almost like looking at clouds or peering into a cave Mm. and there's that sense of what am I seeing and it's a work that you can get lost in it's very dreamy uh, and you can see the ink bleeding into the water it's perhaps a nocturnal scene so it's an it's an image of a particular flower but presented in a way that maybe I'm seeing this flower at night, and and beyond that, it's taking me into a kind of a dreamy sort of existence. So it's a very seductive work, and uh, and one that does not have the iconic, uh, striking features of some of the other works in the collection. But it's one of those works you can spend a lot of time with, just sort of looking at and being carried into this are these sort of veils of reality.
0: Mm, and similarly, but in a, a very different visual way, Chen Yu, uh, with the untitled work from 2014, and enamel on canvas, it also is quite abstract, but very vibrant compared to, obviously, the ink which was black and white. This, to me, is one of those ones which is also transporting and it makes you think, you know, what am I looking at? Is it a flower? Is it a cloud? Is it a pillow that someone could be sitting on in the sky? You know, what do you think about that work?
3: Well, I remember visiting Chen Yu's studio and seeing these large paintings on the floor and this process of pouring enamel paint and uh, creating these big abstract flows. And now this work was painted in 2014, and from a Western perspective, you know, we have a long history of large painterly abstraction. But in the Chinese context, uh, you see artists um, from the 1980s who for the first time have encountered artists like Jackson Pollock. So this was a really, uh, you know, new approach to painting and and I think Chen Yu has really picked up on on that kind of enthusiasm for modes of abstraction. Mm. And and I think a lot of um, Western viewers may sort of see this as coming from an earlier era in Western art, but of course it's got a later timeline in China and it's this great sort of red uh, flow and perhaps there's a figure in the middle of it, but again, very mysterious and a work that you can just get lost in those sort of flows of paint and and shapes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just stunning. I wanted to talk about one of the chapters uh, that you particularly wrote this essay for, it's called On Erotica and Its Provocations and (laughs) You know, you highlight that erotic love has a long history in China and you also say that erotic depictions can be seen uh, to constitute an entire artistic genre which would span from the Song Dynasty uh, and their poems through to Shanghai films from the 1930s Mm. and, of course, contemporary art and in Jeff Raby's collection here. And it is very interesting just how different a lot of these works are and the way that um, erotic subject matter is depicted. And certainly there were a couple that really stuck out to me. I mean, they were all all wonderful, but uh, another by Gordian, um, mm. One Word, One Dream and D- aka Dirty Mind from 2004, mm. which was a cast resin glass, but there are different iterations of this piece. Could you take us through what? It really is because, I mean, it, it looks like this gorgeous rock that's been carved yeah. into and, and very intricately depicting different scenes and figures.
3: Sure. Well, look, I think one thing I'd say about the erotica is that, you know, during the, the, Mao, the Mao period, uh, the idea of presenting something like erotica in the public was an absolute taboo. And uh, some of the artists who I spoke to uh, said that they had been arrested for painting a model in their own studio, uh, a nude model in their studio. And this was seen as a very sort of um, taboo thing. However, if you look at uh, some of the propaganda and particularly the, uh, the, the, the revolutionary operas with the the revolutionary girls in their their tight uniforms, and there's a kind of a um, a promise of sexuality, like you know, get on board with the revolution, and you know, we'll all have a good time together. So it's kind of always there in the in in the 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 work, even during that period. So that particular work that you you reference by Guo Zhen, which is actually a car a cast resin. And the reason you might think that there are several iterations is that because there's a light inside of that resin and it changes colour. So it's this great glowing orb. And it's quite a large piece, but it has that feel of something like jade or crystal that's being carved. And what he's carved into that uh, are Sung, images of Sung Dynasty erotica and... Uh, what's what's the the, the overall shape, which is kind of like a brain, but it is also um, the shape of the Bird's Nest Stadium that was built for the Olympics. And I believe One World, One Dream was the slogan for the Beijing Olympics. So he's making this kind of linkage between a a large public event, such as the Olympics, and the idea of... um, you know, a kind of a, a collective uh, kind of excess, uh, a kind of orgy of of life and and sport and money all happening all together. So I think that's really what's going on in that work. And, uh, you know, it's very finely carved. It's a beautiful mm. object as it's well. It's stunning,
0: yeah. yeah. I love that um, you've shown it in the different lights so you can see just how beautiful it is and, and the different qualities it has. Um, I wanted to make sure we do talk about a, a female artist that I thoroughly enjoyed seeing her work. And a lot of these pieces to me, you know, you look at it and it looks like a vulva. Um, but I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. And there are a couple of pieces. There's uh, Rose Wong. Untitled from 2016, which is Thread, Paper and Resin. And mm. then there's also this other phenomenal piece uh, by Rose Wong, Untitled from 2017, Bronze Patina, Wood and Resin. Mm. And it, it has two different kind of sides. And on the internal side of this hand grenade, it looks like there's a, a peach and then what looks like, to me at least, uh, a vulva again. So could you mm. tell us about Rose Wong's work?
3: Sure. Look, I think... Um... You know there are there are a number of um, of female artists in the collection, and I, I would say that you know in general it's a fairly male dominated art scene in China. Uh, and Jeff has uh, curated shows of uh, Chinese female artists in Australia, and has been really keen to promote the work of emerging artists. And Rose is certainly one of those artists. But the piece that you mention, of course is a large hand grenade and it's split down the middle and you open it up and you get this kind of image of genitalia inside the hand grenade it's almost like this kind of uh you know orgasmic explosion that's going to go off with the hand grenade and uh you know i just think they're really um, uh, unambiguous works shall we say Mm. and sort of straight to the point and uh, and yeah, so that's kind of what Rose is doing. But I think also these works, if you contrast a work like that, which is very immediate, and uh, the the kind of I guess the satisfaction of the work uh, becomes sort of immediately apparent. But if you compare that with somebody like Shao Lu, and again, you know, she's she hasn't got a hand grenade, but she's got uh, a pistol and she's uh, she's firing directly at the viewer, and this is a work that the more you study it, the more and the more you read about it, you realise that this is an incredibly complex work, uh, even though it's got that 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 initial sense of violence.
0: Well, could we just talk about Sha Lu? because her work is very momentous really in the history of Chinese contemporary art, and it's been referenced. I guess, in a range of ways. She certainly had an original exhibition um, participating in the China avant-garde staged in 1989 at the Mm -hmm. National Art Museum in Beijing, Uh, but then subsequently, of course, the 2004 dialogue piece references that exhibition and what happened there. Could you give us the backstory of why Zha Lu's work and why she as an artist is quite significant?
3: Uh, Sure. So... um that, that exhibition at the National Gallery in 1989, which was the first official exhibition of Chinese contemporary art, was enormously significant. And, uh, you know, Lu was one of the participating artists and she went into the exhibition once it had opened and she, she took a pistol with her, her... Um, Artwork that was on display consisted of two telephone booths. There was a man, a figure of a man on the phone in one booth and a figure of a woman on the phone. And it was really a work about, you know, dialogue and perhaps the, the difficulties and pitfalls of dialogue, particularly between, you know, men and women. And, uh, but then she, she came in and she shot the work with her pistol And, of course, you know, she was arrested, as would anyone be in any gallery anywhere in the world had they done the same thing. And, you know, that shot, you know, that went down in history as the first shot fired in Tiananmen. It's like the little Tiananmen. Um, And the critics very quickly, the Chinese critics very quickly, attributed the work to Lu and to her husband and and then said that the work was political in nature. Uh, in the you know in the long run, Xiaolu went into hiding. She moved to Australia, and ten years later, she published her memoir about the event, in which she said, "Look, you know, this was not uh, politically motivated in the way that you think, and this was really a build-up of tensions within within herself." Uh, resulting from, um, you know, uh, a, a kind of um, sexual abuse that she experienced, and um, and it just kind of built up, and she and it sort of exploded out of her. And the fact that that work continued to be um, redeveloped in various forms by Shalu over time really added to the complexity of it, and it's something that just has to be unpacked and un- and understood in a bigger sense rather than just saying oh yeah it's just about politics you know mm. and i think that's the thing about art is that it can be personal and political and sociological it's entangled and complex and this work absolutely embodies those kinds of complexities
0: yeah <clears throat> it's wonderful that jeff has this photographic self-portrait dialogue in his collection and that, you know, mm-hmm. Australia and Latrobe get to see that and have the benefit of seeing her work in that way. We're going to have to skip a couple of chapters, mm-hmm. unfortunately, quite a few actually, but my favourite chapters I've got to say that we haven't yet covered, certainly Surrealism, was just... Mm-hmm moving and amazing. There were so many different mediums that were used and I can't even begin to describe how wonderful the surrealism section was. Uh, but then also, of course, uh, looking at those works from Tibet, Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. And then finally as well, looking at the future of Chinese contemporary art and some of those uh, quite you know, well-known pieces, including one by Chen Man, uh, Ms Wan, Studies Hard. Mm. Um, that one obviously features a couple of times in this book.
3: Yeah. The, he, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, just to begin with the, the section on surrealism, um, I, uh, you know, when I was putting the the collection, you know, in order, I recognised, of course, that there were works that, fitted neatly into well-recognised phases of Chinese art, like political pop and uh, cynical realism, for instance. But I kept coming across these works that had these really surreal qualities to them. And I thought it's so interesting that nobody has really written about this side of Chinese art, that there's this in amazing kind of uh, immersion in, uh, in the uncanny and, and in the imagination You know, and when you live in a city like Beijing that's being torn down and rebuilt and people go away for a couple of weeks and they come back and they can't even recognise their own street because it's changed so much, you know, you're actually living in a kind of a surreal, hyperreal condition. And so I really felt uh, that it needed to be bracketed in this way that looked at the role of the imagination uh, and I mention uh, the, the the philosopher Zhuangzi. ji. this is a you know a very uh, famous story of a man who dreams he 's a butterfly, and when he wakes up he says to himself, "Well, how do I not know I am a butterfly dreaming I am a man?" So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we we in the West talk about Descartes and I think therefore I am, but to say, you know, perhaps I am a butterfly dreaming, I am a man is kind of the Chinese riposte. And it's that kind of thinking and questioning about reality that I think really plays out in these works. So it's really great to have those together. And of course, Guan Wei features uh, heavily in that uh, section of the book, Um There are other fabulous images uh, of of scholars who appear to have stared so long at their scholar rocks that their faces have turned to stone and they look like Chinese scholar rocks. There are artists like A. Shen, very famous now in Australia and elsewhere. Um, And it's a a beautiful kind of dreamy uh, selection of works. There are many artists who were living out at the Sungjuan Artist village as well, so I sort of felt that those artists who had that surreal bent were also kind of hanging out together. Um, and then there are interesting works on paper by Chen Wenling, very very famous artist, but best known for his sculptures. And then when you see the his works on paper of uh, you know like an elephant on fire, but the elephant is composed of all sorts of smaller objects. They're really curious and fascinating works. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, I know that we've probably piqued the interest of many, many people listening. Uh, we've been talking about the Jeff Raby Collection of Contemporary Chinese Art, which uh, Dr. Damien Smith here has edited and also co-written and done a lot more in-depth close work with the artists behind these works, obviously the artworks themselves and the collector, Jeff Raby. Uh, if people want to pick up the book, they absolutely can, so they can engage with these works. Uh, but do you think there'll be a chance for some people to be able to see them again in future, Damien?
3: The, the long-term plan, uh, well, or in the medium term, I know that the Latrobe Art Institute is looking at touring the exhibition to regional galleries. And uh, and in in beyond that, La Trobe University are looking at developing a museum to house the collection. So I, I believe they're looking for benefactors at the moment who could contribute to that project. But the other thing is that La Trobe also has one of the largest. Collections of Chinese propaganda posters. I think anywhere in the world, something like three thousand posters in the Stuart Fraser collection. So if uh, you know those two collections together, really show something special about China. And I know that there'll be ongoing research around the collection. The book tells some of the stories, but it's a, it's a really a, a story that contains so many other stories and so many other projects that I know it'll keep sort of returning benefits to the university and to the community long into the future.
0: No doubt, no doubt. I can't wait to see a lot of these works in person, but this book is truly an artwork in and of itself, Damien. So congratulations on putting it together and all of your work. With the collection and with Jeff, and I do hope people check it out. It's published through La Trobe University Press, the Jeff Raby Collection of Contemporary Chinese Art. Thank you so much, Damien Smith, for joining us today.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Amy.
0: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. This is 3 Triple FM 102.7 FM on your dial streaming at rrr.org.au. Thank you for joining me so far for the last 2 and a bit hours of uncommon sense. For the final interview for today, I'm going to be joined by two brilliant people who are doing great work in the space of uh, civil liberties and rights and human rights, digital rights, privacy, etc. And they are Tanya Wolfe, who is president of the Law Institute of Victoria, and Lizzie O'Shea, who is chair of Digital Rights Watch. And they're both joining me to talk about a very important piece of potential law. It's still a bill. It hasn't been passed both houses yet. It has passed the lower house uh, at the towards the end of February last week. Uh, we have heard a lot of information about this bill, or at least I have, but it hasn't certainly been covered in the media much over the last, gosh, what is it now, three or four years. I originally spoke about this issue and the bill in its original form uh, last March with Juanita Fernando from the Australian Privacy Foundation, and it was called the Health Legislation Amendment Information Sharing Bill 2021. It is now the same title but 2023, And it has been reintroduced in that form into the lower house. And as I said, passed by the Labor government there. It's a different story in the upper house. But certainly the same themes, the same concerns have arisen once again from the consumer groups, uh, healthcare groups, law groups and rights groups. The same concerns they had, you know, in 2021, In 2022 are still present in 2023 and i did hear the health minister on the radio on raf epstein show trying to defend the digital health record this proposed state-based digital health record saying that it's necessary and that not only is it necessary uh a and no opt-out clause um Really, it's just not possible, she said. Basically, she didn't really have a very rational reason for why Victorians couldn't opt out of this digital health record, just like 10% of Australians opted out of the My Health record. So to talk about the details of this bill, uh, which amends the Health Services Act of 1988, is both Tanya Wolfe and Lizzie O'Shea. Thank you both for joining me today.
4: Great to be with you.
0: Thanks so much for having us on. Thank you both. Now, let's talk about this bill and obviously where it's come from, what the rationale is from the Labor Party, the Labor government at the state level here in Victoria, but also some of its supporters who aren't in Labor. And, of course, uh, the Greens definitely did support this in the lower house and the uh, MP Tim Reid, the member for Brunswick, was supportive of this being a former doctor himself. Uh, Tanya, could you take us through what the Victorian state government's rationale is for proposing these amendments and for essentially establishing something that doesn't exist now, which is a a very extensive digital health record? Sure.
4: Thanks, Amy. Um, Look, the the, the rationale really comes from a Targeting Zero report, which was a report that was commissioned by the government into um, what well, was looking at the safety and the quality of our healthcare system, and it provided a number of recommendations to government. And this is one of the recommendations that have, has flown, that has, has emerged through that. It's essentially to, to move from a paper-based health record system to an electronic health record system and there's a clear efficiency argument in relation to that but can I just be really clear about one thing Amy and that's we don't and I don't hear of anyone actually who is concerned about this bill opposing a digital record opposing an electronic record for health or enabling sort of an interchange of information in a more efficient way. No one has that concern. The concern, though, revolves around where the patient's right, the consumer's right, Victorian's right, to be able to say, well, we want to be part of this sharing system or we don't. So the ability to opt out, and that is the major concern. Indeed. It's clearly something
0: that came up with the previous instance, the federal My Health Record, there wasn't an opt-out clause originally for that. And then there was a huge outcry, just like there is now, but it's at a much smaller scale, unfortunately, because I guess it's not really been uh, in the news as much as it should be. And it's been very concerning to see that it hasn't had that similar coverage for people to have that level of public awareness of how this might affect them. Uh, and whether they will have that option, which clearly at the moment they don't, I wanted to talk about the scope of the data that's being collected and also the people who might get to use it, because that would inform a consumer and it would help tell them whether they would in theory, opt out or remain in such a scheme. It's something that people should be able to understand. So, to read, I just wanted to read some of the services. The participating health service is what it's called, and they would be ambulance services, a denominational hospital, a metropolitan hospital, a multi purpose service, a public hospital, a registered community health centre the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health, a residential care service within the meaning of the Aged Care Act, uh, the Victorian Collaborative Centre for Mental Health and Wellbeing, and a prescribed entity or a prescribed class of entity that provides health services. That's pretty extensive. Uh, when you think about the types of groups that would be encompassed in this and also the types of groups who would be required to provide this information to this centralised database. And there have been concerns, given how wide that scope is, how this might affect sensitive patient groups like those who might suffer from mental health illnesses, uh, also who might be a domestic violence victim survivor, for those from the LGBTIQ plus community who may have sensitive healthcare needs, uh, for those in the chronic illness and disability community who may not want all of their information shared, could you talk to us about some of the concerns that you've heard from consumers around... Uh, you know, the sensitivity of the information and also just the scope of where this information is going to come from, but also then who can access it. And I'm happy for both Tanya and Lizzie to contribute if you both have opinions on that.
4: Sure. Um, Just in terms of who can... the, The information that can be accessed, it's pretty significant because all of your health records for several years and going forward... Will be uploaded onto, um, will be provided to the Department of Health. That will create a information sharing platform that all will be then accessible by all health services in that list that you've mentioned. But don't forget that a schedule you can just amend and add different entities onto that schedule. Which the government has been very clear about the fact that they will want to add more services into that schedule as time goes on. Um, So they will be able to access all of your health records and and your health records for a number of years. And let's not forget what is on health records. So, for example, a discharge summary, which is when you've gone to a hospital and you leave, has a lot of information, things that you might have told a clinician. And from a family violence perspective, that's a real concern. So it may be that, you know, you in a situation of trust and confidence have, have told a clinician or disclosed events in relation to a family violence incident. In that circumstance, that record at the moment, according to Bill will be uploaded by the Department of Health onto that website. And let's say you're doing that in Alfred Hospital, someone in the Molduras hospital will be able to instantaneously view that record. So it is it is very significant in relation to the safety for that patient um, and that person to be able to manage the way in which their information is being handled. There may be sexual health um, information from um, a, a consultation or a procedure or a treatment that you've accessed in a participating health service that you don't necessarily want to be readily accessible by hundreds or you know could be hundreds of health services and definitely tens of thousands of public health employees. So you might have concerns about that. So there are a number of concerns in relation to this. And just to be really clear, when I mentioned earlier, Amy, about that Targeting Zero report, although it was talking about an efficiency measure by introducing that electronic health record system, it never mentioned that there would not be a a, a respecting of patients' rights or an ability to opt out Um, and certainly patient autonomy and patient rights have been at the forefront of government legislation over numerous years now, and is actually in Victorian legislation, in other legislation right now in law that we have now. So this is quite a move away from that. Um, So they're the kind of information that I think people are concerned about, and we've been hearing about people being concerned. But if we go back to the fundamental principles of people having the rights to how their sensitive and private information might be used or stored or accessed or to whom it may be communicated with. That's a fundamental right, and that's the one that we're saying should not be um, abrogated by this legislation, should not be impinged upon because that's absolutely essential. Oh, and in Yeah, the, I, yeah Lizzie, I go ahead.
2: I just want to add to that because I think when we think about this or what the problem that's trying to be solved by this regime, often we think, oh, we've got to make sure that everyone can get access to the optimal possible care. And if they have to give up their right to privacy, then that's justified because a treating doctor needs that information. And I think that can um, stray into—it's uh, an understandable concern—but I think you can stray into a paternalistic attitude. You know, people may have very good reasons why they don't want their information stored in a centralised database, and if we uh, preempt that and and deny them the right to make that choice, we are potentially creating harm further down the track even if it's not in that particular care relationship when they present to a treater. Because if you're someone who's trying to avoid an abusive ex-partner and, uh, you know, with all good intentions, there's a a method by which your address then leaks through a discharge summary or can be accessed by someone who, who shouldn't be able to access it. The amount of possible things that could go wrong, um, it's it's quite a large amount, and I think we have a duty to respect people's rights, to make decisions, to say, well, look, I appreciate I might have to have a different kind of care because my records aren't instantly accessible, uh, and I'm making that decision knowingly, and I want to opt out. I I think there's a real argument that if you live in a rights-respecting society, you have to give people the autonomy and the right to make those calls themselves and appreciate that there's, you know, a compromise there, Um, you know, the care may be different, but that's the price they're willing to pay for the right to keep that information to themselves. And Uh, That's the tradition that's routinely been followed in Victoria. Victoria's been a leader federally with a a rights charter. Um, You know, it was one of the first states to introduce that. We've traditionally had a rights-respecting culture in Victoria, and this runs foul of that tradition. And I think it's worth thinking through... Um, some of the counterweight examples to what's put as the primary concern of this bill, which is the delivery of optimal healthcare. It's, it's, it's understandable people want to get access to optimal healthcare, but in a rights-respecting society, we have to also consider other factors that might, um, that might mean that people don't want that and might be, mean that people are prepared to accept different outcomes because they want to protect their information. And in fact, you know, encourage them to continue accessing health services without being worried that that information is being recorded in a system that maybe uh, isn't as secure as they would like. You know, there's a risk, obviously, when information is stored in a central location. Um, And and if people can't opt out of that, they may be disincentivised from from seeking care. And that's also a poor outcome, you know. So, I think it's worth thinking through some of these Mm. examples that that go against this idea that optimal care is the the only objective here that is worth considering and that's the justification for this kind of regime.
0: Mm, absolutely. I I wanted to read out some of the sections here, just that the things that I think are key because I think they get glossed over in interviews and there there are two sections that I think are important, the no consent required section and the access section. And the no consent required section says that a participating health service may collect, use or disclose specified patient health information as permitted or authorised without the consent of the person to whom the information relates. The secretary, and that is the health secretary, may collect, use or disclose specified patient health information as permitted or authorised without the consent of the person to whom the information relates. Then when you get to access, this is the bit that I'm particularly interested in both of your input on, it says essentially, and it defines access and the person who is allowed to access these health records within a, a medical system, this is the definition A person employed or engaged by a participating health service and who is authorised by that health service may access the electronic patient health information sharing system and use and disclose specified patient health information for the purpose of providing medical treatment to a person. And additionally, the secretary or a person employed or engaged and authorised in writing by the secretary may access the electronic patient health information sharing system and use and disclose specified patient health information for different purposes, including establishing, maintaining and operating the sharing system and undertaking information security and data management. Now, those access requirements and kind of definitions are also pretty broad, and they don't just encompass nurses and doctors. They seem to encompass bureaucrats and IT people and public servants. I wonder whether you, Lizzie, and you, Tanya, have concerns about that as well, because that does go to who can access these records, and could they unknowingly fall into the wrong hands?
4: Clearly, that's a concern, Um, and... Can, but what What is really an issue here as well is that there is no ability to audit the use of your information because and as against what, what is the current trend to allow the individual to access um, how their information is being stored by government, here FOI is precluded so you can't actually FOI, the Department of Health, for an audit trail of who has used and accessed their information. That's a real problem for us as well. So um, the, the the concern about that is broad. Obviously, it's very broad, um, but there is no ability to audit it.
0: Yeah, and I just want to bring this information in for you, Lizzie, as well. Uh, when I spoke to Juanita Fernando last year, she said something which stuck with me, which is that databases contain facts, but they don't contain context. And so there's a whole lot of information that gets uploaded with very little context as to where it came from, who really uh, you know, wrote this, in what circumstance was it written in. Sometimes a discharge summary is, uh, has context, but often other things may not have that context. And also sometimes those facts may not even be correct. And just as Tanya said, you then can't audit it, you can't provide context to the data that's in there, you can't correct it if it's inaccurate, uh, because we know that a lot of records can have inaccuracies. If these um, treating medical clinicians, if they're the ones who do end up using it, get all this information, you know is there a chance that they'll get a lot of information that's not even contextualised or correct in some cases? That seems to be another question that has arisen
2: yeah that's that's certainly a concern. I mean, I'm not a doctor, of course, but um you know part of the the justification put is that you know someone presents in an emergency department, they're not competent, they can't um in in a legal sense, in a medical sense, can't give instructions about what's happened to them and um and then of course, you have to infer what might be wrong with them. You don't have their records and and the like. But you're right to point out that a full history or a full set of patient records doesn't always give you. Um, the information that you might need at that critical time like we can often assume that this kind of regime is going is is absolutely necessary because it results in the best possible care but there is more to the story there because of course you're right those records can have errors they can um, be um, missing certain key information and the like and that's really a question for how treaters work and how there's you know emergency departments respond um, to treating someone um, and I think the reality is that a lot of of times people present with complex conditions or multiple conditions, particularly among older populations. And there may be a justification for using an electronic database like this for for people like that. And they're not the people that are going to necessarily opt out of a system like this, right? There may be... Good use cases for this kind of information. You know, I have a I have a broader concern about how we design these databases as a whole. I think if you took a totally different approach to this and you you um, you changed and you opt for a decentralised model, there's there's an there's a whole different way you might do this if you were concerned primarily with information infrastructure and you thought through those issues. Um, but I also think uh, you know that that the, the system is presented. Um, could actually be be useful for certain sections of the population, but that that's not inconsistent with allowing people for whom it's not useful to opt out. For mm. ensuring there's really rigorous transparency around who might have accessed the system, so that then you know, it, Tanya was talking about FOI. There's no reason I don't think that someone couldn't shouldn't have access to the audit of who's been accessing um, their health records because that helps inform. What might have gone wrong if they had um, poor treatment outcomes, but also if there's some misuse of the database that can be identified and addressed? Um, You know, transparency would seem to be pretty much a no-brainer in this context. It creates disincentives for misuse. And it seems unclear to me why why you wouldn't allow for that kind of transparency at a minimum. And then, you know, of course, allow that flexibility for people for whom the system doesn't work. Um, There is a broader, in terms of the opt-out, there is one broader thing that I I think is worth considering too, which is around public trust in these kinds of databases. You know, during the um, pandemic, we all gave away huge amounts of personal information on the basis that it was helping with a public health issue with um, stopping the spread of the virus. Victoria wasn't um, particularly good, I think, in in quarantining that information from sharing with police, for the, for example, for criminal justice purposes. Whereas other states did make that distinction and and p- prohibited that kind of sharing. You know, we're coming at this from a low level of public trust, I think, in government when it comes to large amounts of personal information. And I think governments could do better at instilling confidence in the population that when we share personal information with them, it won't go on to be used by a third party for some other purpose that we didn't originally share it for. And, um, you know, that's my concern about some of this really broad wording around uh, the entities that you were talking about before, Amy. And I think the government could work harder to say, you know, you can trust us with this because these are the kinds of of systems we're putting in place. Don't just take our word for it. We've designed the system so that it can be tightly managed, so that it's transparent and accountable. And that's because we don't want you to just trust us. We want you to trust the system. And that kind of, that's the kind of culture I'd like to see as a digital rights activist you know in Victoria but also federally and it's just it's just always perceived as being um, some kind of luxurious concern that activists like I have when in fact you know we've seen large numbers of data breaches lots of mm. cases of misuse um, and low levels of public trust in government that arise from those contexts and I think it's really an opportunity here for Victoria to turn that around, and that's the kind of uh, approach I'd like to see to these kinds of systems.
0: Absolutely. I'll um, come back to Lizzie in a moment to talk about data security. But, Tanya, I also wanted to ask you, given your legal expertise, about another part of this uh, bill, and we've, I think, briefly referenced it, which is the function of being able to gazette something, to gazette a change, uh, if the health secretary would like to amend things. Could you talk to us about the scope in the bill to gazette changes by a public servant such as the secretary in the Department of Health?
4: Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if I can speak directly to that. I can say that there, there can be amendment and additioning and, and adding more services to this um, bill um, and, and that's the problem when it becomes a legislation um, that it will you know there will be more that will be added to it it will be quite broad and I think just referring to what um Elizabeth was saying before how which was completely correct um we we at the moment we also assume that the data is completely up to date but mm. right now the GPS are excluded from it private health care, Um, Operators are uh, are excluded from it. So it's quite possible that the information that is on that electronic record doesn't have that context and is not the most up-to-date in any event. So it's not really precluding, you know, or stopping the the need for finding out more information, doing it in the ordinary way, which is asking the patient for their consent Mm. to be able to obtain that document, that data, which is absolutely essential. And the other point I just wanted to touch on, because Livy was mentioning that as well, is that once the system is up and running, um, in the same way as my health records, there were a number of people who looked at it and said, I'm I'm, I'm concerned about this. I don't want to opt in, so I'm going to opt out. And at the time, the Greens and the Labor Party, the Federal Labor Party, pushed for an opt-out clause in line with principles of human rights and patient autonomy. Subsequently to that, when people looked at it and saw what was accessed and what would be put on, um, a number of people decided to opt back in again. And that's the kind of system that you have in a mature um, rights-respecting community uh, because it allows people to have the choice and to get the information that they they need and then to be able to satisfy themselves. And for a number of patients, it will be that they don't have they don't have a concern about this. But for those that do, it's not for mm. us to inquire as to... Why they have concerns, or if they have concerns about these things, and if it's soundly based. If someone is concerned about their information being on a system like this, then they do. They should have the right to opt out. And we know, as as we've mentioned already today, that there've been recent terrible data breaches that have concerned the public. Um, you know, half the community got a, an email or a text from Medicare, the other half from Optus. Um, we know that you know databases aren't impervious to being able to be accessed and people have concerns and Mm. I've even spoken to medical practitioners that are concerned about how this might impact on their insurance or if they're applying for a job in a healthcare facility or a promotion whether or not you know their previous disclosures of significant mental health issues might be taken in an adverse way and they might not get an interview so there, Mm. there are concerns that are quite widespread in relation to this And all we're asking is allow the public to have a choice and allow people to be able to make decisions themselves and opt in and opt out, which, by the way, is what we can do with so many different things at the moment now because we're able to make decisions about our future medical treatment and deny future medical treatment that might be life-saving. Um, if we decide we want that through, you know, Medical Treatment yeah. Decision Makers Act, where you can have a binding directive in, in advance. We know that our um, views and preferences are to be taken into consideration with the new Mental Health and Wellbeing mm-hmm. Act. There is, there's such a trend to do that now. Um, and, in fact, that is the way that civilised societies are, are moving and democracies are moving, and yet this seems like such a retrograde step. Yeah, it is, yeah.
0: To let people know what I was referencing there about the Gazette, um, in the section notice of health information required to be given to the secretary the secretary by notice published in the government gazette may specify health information to be given to the secretary by participating health service For the purposes of this system so there are sections in this bill which specify um gazetting and the secretary being able to direct what they would like to happen through that process i appreciate what you're saying there tanya about the other ways that patients either consent or don't consent to certain health services lizzie when i last spoke with wanita she was concerned about data security because and this was before the medibank and optus leaks uh Between 2019 and 2020 in Victoria, when looking at health data breaches, there was an increase, a 16% increase in health data breaches. And the Victorian government also featured in those breaches. Uh, There are previous examples of ransomware attacks on hospitals in Victorian public hospitals. What are some of the concerns that digital health um, sorry, Digital Rights Watch, has put to the crossbench MPs in the upper house in this letter that I saw you put your name to just recently. What are some of the concerns and uh, and issues around data security um, that you would like the crossbench to consider and to, I guess, uh, hopefully amend the bill?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting time to digital rights activist because i've talked about cyber security quite a bit but um i hate to say it the last six months has really brought these conditions to the fore in a quite a visceral way for many people and i feel really terrible for the victims of recent cyber attacks but it does also focus the mind that these are a real thing because um, you can often assume that that attacks are something that are, is always preventable or it's not going to happen in these scenarios because we've got very tight security measures but i think that's kind of hubris you know cyber attacks are now part of life um and we need to plan for them like they're going to happen and that they can be stopped as soon as possible and that we have the best possible practices in relation to cyber security and it's good to see the federal government for example elevating um standards across the country in that respect but the attack that comes to mind is actually Singhouse, which has had a similar kind of regime and in 2018 one and a half million records were stolen in eight days while a vulnerability was um exposed including that of the president you know so very sensitive information that could be used for all sorts of different purposes by a nefarious actor. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I talk about decentralisation rather than creating a honeypot for attackers by centralising all health information in one spot, um, you know, supposedly run by the Victorian government, well, I think we should think about how we can decentralise these kinds of databases, include forms of friction so that access is not um, open-ended, that, that people don't just get access to these um, once and then forever in a different health service provider, that, that really closes down access points and limits yeah. them as much as possible. So there shouldn't be an assumption that as soon as someone accesses it, they need a health record in a centralised system, they need to access that forever more. Um, so really tightening up some of those concerns. A lot of this will be in implementation, I think, rather than, say, um, legislation relatively prescribed, which, um, you know, on one level is fine because you need flexibility to adapt and you need to be allow people who are delivering this if the, the bill is passed to be able to act according to best standard cyber security. But I think it's, um, I, I just, I, I don't think it's fair the way that the government is currently answering concerns about privacy and cyber security by saying, oh, we're going to have very serious fines for misuse and breach because um, I don't, that didn't That didn't stop um, the hackers for Medibank and Optus. Um, I think what will stop and minimise these kinds of attacks is putting in place the best systems for cybersecurity, minimising access where possible, decentralising where possible, (coughs) designing systems with that in mind um, and allowing allowing people, of course, to opt out so that they can avoid these things. That's part of it too if they're particularly concerned. Um, and being transparent and accountable when things go wrong so that we can fix them, learning from things like the Singhealth disaster, you know, that they did in putting in place various steps and learning from from them, including how things are accessed and, and limiting that. So that's what I would like to see in terms of implementing cybersecurity. I think we're a long way behind lots of other liberal democracies in this respect, who are much further ahead. And so, part of it's a long-standing issue that's been facilitated by the federal government. But I, I would like to think again, Victoria could lead in this respect and be open and accountable about how they're introducing best practice cybersecurity, rather than just trying to fob off concerns like this and mm-hmm. claiming that they have high high penalties and and this is this is a concern of tinfoil hat wearers, which I, I think it's fair to say is not the case
0: not at all tanya just to close out this chat oh sorry I just was hoping to get your input on the situation as it stands, because we've seen David Limbrick from the Liberal Democrats table a a petition of over 10,000 signatures calling for the government to be amended, the government bill to be amended, just as you've requested, that there needs to be a legislated opt-out clause and that these records are FOIable. And we know what the crossbench currently looks like, which is that we've got Liberals, uh, not including the government, we've got, Um, the Greens, uh, legalised cannabis, Liberal Democrats, animal justice, shooters, fishers and farmers, Democratic Labor and One Nation, and of course, concerns from the Liberal Nationals. Where do you think we will get to when this comes back to the upper house in a week or two? Um, Is there anything that people listening can do to put pressure on crossbench MPs to try and amend this, especially, of course, the Greens, who you would think would stand for um, patient consent and autonomy?
4: Well, I would encourage um, all, anyone who's listening to this who's concerned about this to make contact with all of the crossbenchers and to identify their concern um, from both the opt-out position and the FOI position, so not being able to opt-out, not being able to FOI, write to them, make contact with them. As you've identified, they're talking all the Greens. There are four Greens. There's One Nation. There's um, There's the Liberal Democrat, obviously, David Limerick is completely on side. In fact, mm. I think he's even asking for an opt-in rather than an opt-out. Um, the, the, the Liberal Party, the coalition, uh, have expressed concerns about this as well. But you do need to put pressure on all of the crossbenchers and let them know that this is deeply concerning. And as Lizzie mentioned, penalties do not um, do, do not deter or stop any privacy breaches. And I'm not aware there's really significant penalties in the existing Act for Health Services Act for disclosing health information in a way that you shouldn't in privacy breaches, and I don't I don't know of any time that the ever been used to prosecute. So you don't want to shut the barn door after the, the horse has escaped. Let's get in quickly.
0: No, and the current uh, penalty that is being suggested is that it would either be 240 penalty units or that is equivalent to two years' imprisonment for someone who... Uh, accesses the information and is not authorised to. And as we know, the number of people who could be authorised to access it is actually quite broad. So we're really talking about malicious actors and not um, a whole range of people who aren't doctors. Uh, Thank you so much, both of you. I know it's been a bit of a whirlwind to get through all the detail of this bill, but it's been so critical to hear both of your voices because you're giving us so much insight into how this will affect everyone. And even if you think it doesn't affect you, it certainly is about rights, trust in government and patient care and autonomy. So I really do appreciate both your time, Tanya Wolf from the Law Institute of Victoria and Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch. Thank you both for your time today.
2: Thanks, Amy. My
4: pleasure. Great to talk to you, Amy.
0: I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast.